Cracks and Pomo will be releasing a zine featuring a variety of writers, some of whom have been featured on this podcast. To order a copy or to make a contribution to our funds, please DM at Cracks and Pomo. Welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Justin Gibbony, who is the president of the AND campaign. Justin, thanks so much for coming on. Stephen, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, bro. So Justin and I met at the New York Encounter this past February, where he and another friend, Chloe Valdari, talked about DEI, diversity. And I wanted to continue the discussion with him. Uh, but before we do that, Justin, can you tell people a little bit about the background, the history of the AND campaign? Sure. I mean, a lot of it mixes in kind of with my background. I'm an attorney and political strategist. I've uh, been working in politics in Atlanta, Georgia for over a decade. Uh, and as I was doing that, just being in a really progressive space, uh, just felt like there were some of my convictions as a Christian that I couldn't bring with me. And it was one of those uh, convicting moments or convicting times where I just couldn't shake it and felt like I had to do something to give Christians a different framework uh, to engage with rather than just the kind of cultural war, conservative versus progressive. Um, and so that's initially where the, you know, the compassion and conviction idea came from. Mm -hmm. uh, I started thinking, look, I think one of the problems with our political and cultural landscape is that we're working based on this false dichotomy, yeah. which makes us choose either social justice or moral order. But when I looked at the gospel, I saw Jesus choosing both. I saw, you know, Ephesians 4 telling us to speak the truth in love. And so that we would see that love and the truth aren't against each other, compassion and conviction aren't against each other, that, th that they should actually work together. And that's really what the AND campaign means, compassion and conviction, social justice and moral order. It's a different framework than I think a lot of folks in the public today work from. And so we're just trying to use that to uh, equip Christians and give them ways of engaging that may not uh, be based on the partisan or ideological lines, but we believe to be more faithful. Yeah. And when, again, like when you look at the Gospels, when you look at the Christian tradition, these moral convictions, these claims about objective truth and also mercy, forgiveness, compassion for the person, the sinner, you know, and, the, you know, their, their, their struggle, their story, whatever they've been through, like it, it's all one thing. But why is it that right now we have such a hard time balancing this both and why are we following why are we falling into this either or mentality? I mean, for one, I just think it's our brokenness, right? We've split those two things in two. And so it's caused the tension because sometimes it is hard to say, okay, I love you. And if this truth hurts you, um, am I really loving you? But I think you you bring up a good point. Jesus' example is perfect. Nobody loved people more than he did, but he also didn't coddle people. Uh, and so what we have to realize is that those two things, love and truth, compassion and conviction are not um, at odds that they're interdependent. And for us, that means living within attention. And I, so, I think one of the things we try to avoid is living in attention. And the two prominent ideologies in our um, public uh, sphere have, I think, seemed or projected themselves as if they, they cure that tension, like they get us out of that tension, mm -hmm. but not in a faithful way. I think we have to live in that tension. It's going to be hard, but we have to find, we always have to love people and we have to find ways to love them while maintaining uh, God's truth. Yeah. And when you look at the history of the U.S., at least, you see that 
you know, the Puritans brought over this very Manichaean mentality that's, you know, there's the good side, there's the bad side. And, you know, they have to kind of duke it out with each other. There's no, there's no room for that tension. Um, but we see what the consequences are. We see how suffocating it is to live in this, this binary. Um, but well, what would you say to, you know, to devout, to devout people who think that, you know, of course, this, these, these two opposing sides, the, the polar opposites, it's not ideal, but at the end of the day, this is the reality we live in. So we do have to choose a side if we want to get something done. You know, we have to choose either the mainstream left or right. What would you say to those kinds of arguments? Uh, I would say that's false. Uh, I think we do have to choose right versus wrong. So we do have to take the right position. But I think to tell Christians that they have to be on one side or the other on every issue is, is basically telling them to be unfaithful when neither side gets it all the way right. Uh, one One way that I put it was that you know, Jesus didn't say, well, these Pharisees are bad. Let me be a Sadducee because they may be, you know, less offensive to me. Or, you know, these Pharisees are bad. Let me be a Herodian. No, we, you know, you may choose a political party, but even within that political party, you have to hold them accountable and you have to speak the truth and be aware of what they do wrong. And if they get something wrong, you may have to step on the other side and say, no, this isn't, this isn't the way that it should go. So the idea that Christians have to fit into this dichotomy uh, I think it's false. There are practical reasons why you may why you may side with one side or the other uh, from time to time, uh, but you have to take the right position, not the right side, because I don't know that there is a right side, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think again, it's this problem of living within that tension. Because at the end of the day, you do have to make a choice. Like you have to pick something. But to like, I don't know. Like I see people, for example very religious people in the Democratic Party who agree with a lot of the party's platform. But when it comes to something like, I don't know, abortion or euthanasia, they're, they don't agree with, um, you know, the mainstream Democratic take on that. But a lot of them are afraid to say, hey, you know, I'm going to speak up within my own party because I, you know, I, I believe in this. A lot of people think that, you know, if I want the Democratic candidate to be elected, I have to keep my mouth shut and just do whatever I can. Because again, it's lesser of two evils. But, but what you're saying, like you're taking this kind of prophetic stance, saying, "Hey, look, like this may be the reality we're in, but we should aspire for something greater. Like we should be, um, we should be a witness to the, these higher truths, even if that means that it's not expedient for our particular party we're associated with." But I, I think, like, if you're going to take that prophetic stance, that requires a lot of faith. Like, you need to trust that God is much more powerful than you know, whatever politician or political party. So I'm just wondering for you, like, what uh, what enables you to take that prophetic position? Like, where does your your trust that your, your witness, like, where does that come from? I think it comes from uh, obviously reading the Bible, but, but also my elders. I mean, when I look at the civil rights era, I don't see people who took a side as far as conservatives and progressive. I mean, even Martin Luther King, you look at who he criticized, he criticized the conservatives, he criticized the liberals and he considered criticized the moderates. Um, so again, you may, there may be a practical value in being a Democrat or Republican. I'm a Democrat, been so most of my life, but I don't take this aside to the extent that when they get abortion so terribly wrong, I feel like I have to be silent to me at that point, as a Christian, you become unfaithful. And so as somebody who's in the democratic party, I have to speak up extra loud on that issue to let them know that we're not on the same side in that regard. And they're wrong. Uh, one of the ways that I put it also is, you know, if if I have an infection in my right leg and my left leg and the right leg is just a little bit for, you know, a little bit further down the road, I still have to treat both of them because they're both going to kill me. So 
that's the way that we need to think of kind of politics and and, and these tribes sometimes. Uh, if they get something wrong, they need to be corrected. I'm, we can never be on someone's side so much that we wouldn't um, do what we could do to heal uh, what was going on. Yeah, and you know this is this is something that you spoke a lot about at the New York Encounter. This this ideological polarization that makes it so that we feel like it's impossible to talk to someone who has certain differing points of view. So if you're saying you know you're a Democrat to talk about abortion with other Democrats is very challenging. Um, and you said something about um, having I, I understood it as having this detachment from your ideological positions and being able to understand you know. What is the other argument? Where do their where does their belief come from? Like what's what's valid about it? What's what's not, you know, what's kind of weak about mine? Um, so can you talk a little bit about like how you've developed this kind of reasoned way of engaging with people who disagree with you? Yeah, for sure. I think at Christ, as Christians, we have to have the humility and vigilance to always be testing ourselves to make sure we haven't been indoctrinated. I mean, the Bible talks about a lot about em empty philosophy and us following that. Uh, so we always have to be on the lookout for that. One of the problems that I see today is that once we choose a side, so to speak, we just automatically expect the other side to be wrong and we critique them harshly. In many cases, we don't even know the best arguments. Uh, so if we watch certain cable news shows, we may not know the best arguments that conservatives have or progressives have. We're sometimes just responding to the characters on the other side and, and the worst representations on the other side. We, if you're going to critique someone else, you need to be to be able to articulate what good they're trying to get at. Even if you disagree with the conclusion, you should be should be able to say, okay, this is generally what progressives are trying to get at on this issue. You can say why you think that's wrong, but if you can't articulate that, then do you really know what you're criticizing? Uh, and that's one of the ways that I try to challenge people to say, make sure you're dealing with the best arguments. Make sure you have what's been called media hygiene so that you can tell me you're, you know, someone on the left that you listen to and someone on the right that you listen to. Listening to them does not mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that that you think they're right. It just means you've taken the time to hear the best arguments on the other side and you're honest enough to to, to be challenged. And I think we, that's really missing in the public square today. We get in an ideological tribe and just ride it out. And many people haven't really even thought about what they're uh, supporting or rejecting. Yeah, no, and it's, I think it's on one hand, the, that intellectual humility to be able to say, you know, I'm not God, I may not fully understand all the sides of this argument. But also there's a, a need for curiosity, like even though you may have firm convictions, shouldn't we be curious to understand this other perspective, even if it might be wrong? Um, and you, you said this, you said that it was um, this, this exercise you encourage people to do to like try to find five um, pitfalls in your own political ideology and then five positive things about the ideology you disagree with. And I, I thought, I mean, that's, it's profound because how many people in America can do that? You know, right. I mean, I've, I don't know, like I, I think about myself and how, because I've, I've studied philosophy, I've studied theology, like I, I do try to read about the beliefs of different points of view. I do try to understand where are they coming from? And when I do that, it does help me to have respect for the people who espouse those beliefs. But again, looking at the the mainstream discourse, like we see so little of that. You know, like if we take take the abortion thing, for example, like you see very pro-choice people who are characterizing pro-lifers as, you know, these very backwards people who want to oppress women. But 
there are different pro-life narratives. And when you look at when you look at them and evaluate them, you see, okay, maybe there are certain things you might agree with because there are some pro-life people who want to create more resources for women in, in crisis pregnancy. Or if we take on the other side, like I see a lot of reactionaries on the right who freak out about, you know, the woke, standard woke narrative um, to the point that, you know, you see people making certain claims about systemic racism and you think it's going too far. So then you say, okay, well, we need to we need to just totally eliminate any talk about racism. You know, in fact, there is no racism anymore. Um, again, it's this, this irrational back and forth between these extremes. Like, can we really expect to go anywhere, mm. you know? Um, but, but why do you think, why do you think we've lost that, that humility, that curiosity? Like, ha have we ever had it? Or is it something that we just, we're going to have to build from scratch in this culture? I don't know that we've ever had it. I think maybe some of our best institutions forced us to do it. I think academia at its best, in a way, used to force us to do that. I don't know if, in a broad sense, academia is always doing that, its job in that way. And some, some people are. Um, but I think we're missing some of that from our institutions. And, you know, so another thing that I say to people is if I can't criticize your party or your favorite politician without you getting upset, then that means your identity is in your party or your identity is in your ideological tribe. You should be able to hear there's nothing, Stephen, that you could say about Democrats that I would get personally offended about uh, because that's not where my identity is. I may agree with you. <laughs> you know, I may co-sign you and I may disagree with you because I, I separate myself in that way. And I don't think we're doing that. I think, again, we've been fed so much of this good versus evil narrative that we truly believe that anything the other side does is meant to harm, control, or deceive us. It has to be. Even, even the stuff they get right, right? One of, one of the things that I've said before is that when you get into this good versus evil uh, dynamic, you not only hate their vices, you begin to hate their virtues and can't admit when you see their virtues, right? That's that's how it distorts how we think. Um, instead of just kind of being honest and having what I've called kind of thinking of things through the Imago Dei original sin tension to say, okay, even my opposition is born in the image of God, right? There's, some, there's, there's something redeemable there. And I also have original sin. So I also get things wrong. When we see it through that Imago Dei original sin dy dynamic, I think it forces us to be humble and forces us to really hear other people out in fear that we might not see their humanity. Like we should fear that because human because we throughout history we've done that and we should all be guarding ourselves against that potential. Yeah, and what you're saying about your identity not being based on whatever political stance you, you choose to take, um, it, it helps us understand why this this good versus evil political narrative, like it's filling in this spiritual existential vacuum, you know, because we should, um, we do have this need to identify with some kind of truth claim, but if we reduce it to a purely political one, like that's not enough to, right. to fill us, to fill our souls as humans. Like there needs to be a bigger spiritual foundation so that when we enter into politics, again, we have that humility, that healthy detachment, and we recognize the humanity of, you know, the other, of this quote unquote enemy. But, but this is making me think about what you said earlier about, you know, the fact that you had relationships with elders like people whose example you could follow um could you say more about those people who you looked up to and how following their example shaped your sense of who you are and your identity yeah i mean i would certainly say my grandparents uh so my my, my grandfather was uh, a bishop um in the church of uh living god um pgt nation and just seeing the way that he combined orthodoxy 
with social action, right? He's that civil rights generation of pastor and to see all the things they went through, but they went through those things. And I never saw some of the bitterness that I see today, right? And surely there are people in their generation who were, who were bitter, but there are a lot of people raised in the South had gone through Jim Crow and they still had a deep, the deep, deep and abiding joy that the, the Bible talks about. Not that everything was good, not that every day they were they were happy, but in general, their perspective was that way. And so that really helps me, you know, when, when you're on social media and people are coming at you, that really helps me put things in perspective. Can I treat people kindly uh, in this situation if my grandparents and their generation were able to go through much more and still have that gospel-centered view of their neighbor? Uh, it just It just gives me the ability to push forward. And then also when I go back to church and I have, you know, some of the elders in the church tell me that they're proud of what I'm doing, uh, that they've been waiting for something like this to, uh, to happen and for somebody to speak up. That really um, encourages me and I think kind of inspires me to keep, keep it moving. Yeah, no, and what you're saying, it really shows us how like ideologies feed off of uh, isolation, you know, like when we're alone, when we don't have people to rely on, to look up to and follow, you know, all these ideas start to fester and then we base our identities completely on that. And there, there's no freedom. There's no joy, as you said, you know. Um, but just shifting gears a little bit, I did want to talk about, you know, I know that you're a big fan of Chesterton. I see him right behind you on your wall. Um, you know, I think what's interesting about figures like Chesterton, like Dorothy Day, their political and economic views were shaped by this both and logic, that there's this need for recognizing objective truth claims, you know, orthodoxy, as he says for taking responsibility for one's actions, but also recognizing that, you know, we're born into sin. So we we struggle, we fall short. There's a need for mercy. There's a need for charity. Um, so I'm interested to know, like, first of all, how did you get into to Chesterton's ideas, but also how do you think that type of model might be applied within the American context? Yeah, so I think the way that I got into uh reading G.K. Chesterton is when I heard that he was part of the reason that C.S. Lewis converted and had read mere Christianity and, and, and stuff like that. And I was like, okay. So I picked up orthodoxy and it basically blew, you know, blew my mind. I thought, I thought the way that he talked about orthodox belief was just incredible. In fact, I tell people, I don't think any Christian should go to college without reading that first, because he, he addresses so well the problems with modernism and what's kind of coming out of this secular progressivism. It's just amazing. Um, and so what I think he helped me do when I first went to college, I went to Vanderbilt University, was raised in the church. But when I went to Vanderbilt, I didn't have an apologetic. Um, I knew what I believed, didn't really, wasn't able really to explain why I believed what I believed. Um, and so that made it really tough. You know, I, I didn't even know when I went to my first religious studies class that it wasn't going to be like Sunday school, what we, you know, what we do in the Black uh, Baptist tradition. So um he helped me go from kind of a naive faith to a, a faith that could be tested intellectually. Um, him, along with people, the other guy behind me, you know, Gardner C. Taylor, folks like that, who were speaking about religion on a different in a different way. Yeah. Uh, what I, especially with his economic positions, you know, if you want to go into that, um, the distrib distributism and the insight that we shouldn't completely trust the business side of it, and we shouldn't completely trust. Um, um, we shouldn't completely trust corporations or government okay. and how they need to kind of balance each other out, I thought was excellent. And I think it's I think it's the cure for some of the battles that we see today where you have corporatists who mm -hmm. think, you know, basically the uh, 
the the market is the holy spirit and somehow it's going to make everything right uh and then you have the folks who on the socialist side who really think that hey we just put the government in charge of all the property put the government and put things in the government's hands that it's going to actually work out and i just don't see a whole lot of proof of concept for either of those uh and our economy especially is in a bad place uh, we're in a situation where you see some of the worries that Chesterton and Dorothy Day had, where you have the suppression of wages, where you have a situation where people don't have land, there's a housing crisis, so we know distributism would, would speak to that. But you also have the suppression of wages and a lack of worker power to even push back to get fair wages. Um, so much of that needs to be <laughs> needs to be part of how we look at policy for him, from here on out, not just through the eyes of individuals and corporations, but through the eyes of families and what people are trying to aspire to, because our economy right now is failing a lot of people. And I know that's a whole different conversation, but I know it's one that I think uh, Chesterton could have spoken to for sure. Yeah, and but again, why is it that within, for Christians within the American context, like why do we default to this either big state or big corporation kind of logic? Like why do we have a hard time trying to propose a more distributist model. I think for some of us, it's in our favor to be completely corporatist, right? Like if you're in a position where you you can make as much money as you can, um, you know, by offshoring jobs or whatever, why would you want it to change? For others, you see that happening and you say, well, the opposite must be better. But one of the beautiful things that uh, C.S. Lewis taught us is that the enemy sends errors in pairs. And he uses your dislike for one error to send you in the, to the opposite error. And so we don't necessarily get to that correction. We just are dealing with the errors and we dislike each other so much that once one side takes a position, it seems like what's right could only be the opposite position. Unfortunately, that's not how things work. And I just don't think we have the wisdom uh, today to see that that's not how you don't respond to somebody that's doing things wrong by doing the opposite. You try to find the correction. Um, and I don't think we see that. So what would you say to the, um, the the option to vote for and promote a third party? So like if you take the American Solidarity Party, which is yeah. you know very small, but is trying to promote this distributist ideal. Do you think it's it's worth our time? Do you think it's something we should be looking into? I think it's worth our time. I, uh, for, for the record, I, I love uh, the American Solidarity Party, love what they stand for, love their platform. They have some good folks working for them, and I, I wish them all the success. Um, I think it is difficult, though, um, because we've always pretty much had a two party system. The system right now is set up to do to, to maintain that. But I think if you focus on local victories and you build up from there uh, in a very targeted way, there's moves you can make and there's uh, uh, ways to move the needle. But what I tell people is I would love to be able to vote for a third party and for them to have a, a good chance of winning. But I don't think we need to necessarily wait for a third party either. So I love the people that are doing that work. Keep doing that work. We don't necessarily have to wait for that, especially in the body of Christ. I think things have turned, the way things have turned out, you have Orthodox Christians who are on the Republic, in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party. If we would just find six issues that we agreed on, we could actually have a major impact on American society and politics without having a third party. But we would have to be willing to defy those uh, kind of ideological and, and partisan uh, lines. We don't have to wait for that. We can work towards it, but we don't have to wait for that. We can start having conversations about things like religious liberty. Um, uh, we can talk about issues with, with housing, uh, uh, crime, uh, abortion. You have enough, you have a critical mass that if we would stop talking through intermediaries and, and, and talk to each other, 
that we could actually get some things done, even if we remained in different parties, even even if we disagreed on different issues. There's many things that we could do uh, if we were willing to organize and get it done. Yeah, and I think to be open to that, you know, bipartisan collaboration, it it requires, like you said, a lot of humility, but also a lot of trust in the other, you know, the other who has, you know, different point of view as you. But I, I'm going to ask, I asked this to uh, Albert Thompson, who came on the podcast last year. He's, you know, works with American Solidarity Party. Uh, and he talked a little bit about how distributism might shed light on the current discourse about racial justice. But I, I do want to hear your take, like being someone who's read Chesterton and Dorothy and, you know, a lot of other people who have that political economic point of view. Yeah. How might distributism change the way we construe the narrative about creating more racial equality, trying to strive for justice in that area? That's a good question. Um... You know, a lot of times, we, you know, a lot of people who focus on class don't want to talk about race. A lot of people who focus on race don't want to talk about class. Uh, and that's because it makes it doesn't make it as clean of a narrative. But generally, and even when you look at MLK's work, you have to look at both. Um, and the truth of the matter is, even when you talk about the wealth disparity, that wealth disparity is usually among like the 1% compared to everybody else, not really among your average common person, whether they're black or white, that 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 disparity isn't as large when you take that really big group on the top out. Yeah. Um, and so I think what, if you look at distributism, if, if you look at how it, how it deals with the economy, it settles a lot of issues just because you will have a lot of African-Americans that benefit from those type of policies. Um, and so I think it does create some level of equality, but also, and what, here's what I don't think people see, a lot of the issues that we struggle with that turn into race issues, sometimes are economic issues. Uh, that people and 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 we've set we framed it in a way that anything that happens to me, I blame on race, but sometimes it should be based, blamed on class. Sometimes yeah. it should be blamed on the economic system that we're facing. But we find this one thing to blame everything on. The thing it reminds me of is in Acts uh, 19, when when there's this big riot and, and Paul is in Ephesus and he basically tells the idol makers that what you're doing is worthless. Like the, what you're making, it has no power. So he kind of messes up their business. But when the riot happens, there's people there who don't even know why they're there. They're just screaming and mad because what we do in the mob mentality is all our problems, whether they're related or not, are channeled and focused in on one thing. Sometimes that's race. Sometimes it's other things. And it really pushes us against each other. I mean, if you look at history, even in places like Chicago, when corporatists wanted to do something wrong to uh, white immigrants, well, they go and they bring up black people to take their jobs. Now we're automatically at each other's necks because we didn't know, you know, as black people coming up to the north, we didn't know exactly what, what the games that were being played. But the folks who whose jobs, who who they wanted to suppress their wages, they're looking at us and now they're mad at us. When the truth of the matter is, it's bad economics and, and a lack of worker power in many cases that turns us against each other in ways that it doesn't have to. Yeah, and I mean, and this brings me ultimately to the... The standard, again, like the quote unquote woke um, post-structuralist critical race theory kind of narrative that's becoming very popular, but also very divisive today. And I'm seeing so much of either this wholesale endorsement or this reactionary opposition. It's like, okay, I mean, this is a multifaceted kind of discourse and it, it asks some really important questions and also proposes some very concerning answers. But I mean, for so for example, I see a lot of people freak out that know this claim that racism has this systemic element it's not just this interpersonal thing 
Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, when we turn it into this overarching meta narrative, they're like throughout all of history, it's been, you know, the whites oppressing the people of color. Sure. I mean, it's extreme because it's it's a quasi-religious narrative. Again, it's filling in sure, this social vacuum. But is it true that on the books, you know, in the laws, there were these inequalities that continue to have, you know, this um, this reverberation throughout our economic system today? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to deny that. Um, or, or also, like, I don't know. I want something that I'm I'm thinking a lot about is the concern about microaggressions because, from my perspective, you know, these are yeah, these aren't you know heinous crimes, but there are small things that are said that do cause damage over the time that can be hurtful. Um, and I think it's, it's, at least for me, like having done like the standard DEI training, it's helpful to know that when I say certain things or when I act a certain way, yeah, it can make someone feel pretty not good about themselves sure. to, you know, to cancel someone and destroy their entire career over it is another question, but I don't know. So I'm, I'm curious to, to hear like, what is your take on this kind of current discourse that we have? Like, how do we piece apart? the valuable things from the more extreme things without, again, taking on this reactionary position. Yeah. I, I mean, Christians shouldn't run from any theory, right? Like theory, whether it's capitalism, whether it's CRT, whatever, I don't think we have to be afraid of it where we have to run from it and just say, without even reading it and being able to define it, I just know it's terrible. Well, no, you don't, if you can't, if you can't explain what it is. Yeah. So even something like critical race theory, right? Uh, at the basis of it, at its best, what it's doing is critiquing abuses of power. Yeah. To say language has been used and these other systems and institutions have been used to hold some people back and it gives other people an unfair advantage. The Bible critiques abuses of power. If you look at Amos, when he goes in and says, look, there's partiality in our courts. Look how you're treating the poor. He's talking about systemic injustice. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you can read through the Old Testament prophets and not see that um, being talked about. So I, I, don't, I don't think we need to run from those type of critiques, because if we do, we could miss some serious injustice in our society. The Bible is not in nowhere does it say do not critique systemic injustice. I, I don't it doesn't say that. Now, does it have ex its excesses? And I think it does have its excesses. Um, I think anytime you get into the kind of um, racial essentialism and making every, you know, making white supremacy and racial issues, because we in this country has a race problem. And we need to deal with that race problem. But when we make it this all powerful, ever present thing that we can't, you know, it's just in everything, it's just somewhere out there in, in everything that we do to where we can't overcome it, that's going too far. When we have to have this narrative that can't even consider class, like if you bring class into it, that messes us up so much. So let's not even talk about class at all. Class doesn't matter. Let's just talk about race. Well, that's because you're not being realistic, right? Anytime, you know, anytime you have to deny a truth to explain your side of the story, it's wrong. Just like when, you know, people who are pro-choice act like the baby doesn't exist. Yes, that makes for a clean narrative. No, that's not the whole truth. So sometimes the things that make our arguments easier are the things that make our arguments bad and unrealistic. And I think some of those, some of those theories suffer from that, which doesn't mean that they are completely without merit. It means that a Christian should be able to step back, critique it honestly, and not be worried about if it messes up the narrative or not. Yeah, and I, I think this goes back to this puritanical Manichaean mentality that we see ourselves falling into again today, because, um, again, to say that white supremacy is real and that it has consequences today, like, you know, obviously it's true, but to turn that into this kind of witch hunt of like, you know, if you say one thing that's, you know, a little bit problematic, 
yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I cut you off, but I wanted to add one thing. That's the other place that it goes wrong is it makes everything about power. Yeah. And so in, instead of healing things, really the best you can do is just a reversal. Um, and I think the Bible teaches, I think we want to heal things and not just take the power that somebody else has and do the same thing to them. And at its, at its you know, in some, in some iterations of, of this theory, that's the best you can do is turn the gun back on, you know, the other side. And I think Christians have to believe in something more. Yeah, and it's, again, this is stemming from this very flimsy anthropological framework because, again, to expect anyone to be totally pure, um, it, it ignores the fact that, you know, the other is born into original sin, but also me. Like, I can't expect myself to be pure. Like, sometimes I am going to say things or do things that are, I know are not ideal. And that's why there's this need for, as you say, compassion for for mercy and, and healing of those wounds, not this expectation of perfection and, again, like, holding on to power, you know. Um, and again, it's my the reason why I feel like personally I feel more free to engage with the current discourse without either endorsing it wholesale or reacting against it is because I have relationships with people whose lives are very much implicated in it. So like I don't know, having friends of color who tell me about how, you know, the fact that DEI training is becoming standard, they have to deal with a lot less of these microaggressions. And and when someone treats them badly, like it's more likely that that person is going to get called out for it and that their, their suffering is not going to have to be totally silent. So that's why I say, hey, like I see the value here. I don't think it should be banned. Um, again, should we question the way that it's being applied? Sure. But without those friendships, without relationships with real humans, I really wouldn't be able to enter into DEI and understand like, man, what is valuable here, also what's problematic, you know. But um, but then the other thing I did want to ask though is like, I'm finding again within the standard narrative, there's little space for these traditional religious worldviews, but also a, a real kind of um, I guess like this this amnesia about the the history of the civil rights movement and that from even before abolition so much of these movements were driven by religious spiritual convictions yeah. what do you think has happened there like why is it that suddenly we forget the roots then we were were hostile to these these religious convictions which have played such a huge role in you know black american communities throughout history well for one i think is a co-optation right so i think i think the secular left once has long tried to co-opt the civil rights movement but i think on the other hand it's the impact of the moral majority and seeing the harshness the lack of compassion uh there um but i've said over and over again that in America, nobody has done social justice better than Christians, whether it's Dorothy Day, whether it's Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, nobody has done it better. So the claim that Christians somehow don't know how to do it right or Christianity is too weak to make it happen or, or too unloving. You know, Cheston did a great job. He said Christianity is often accused of both extremes. Right. Um, and I think if you look at it historically, We've done it. We've done it very well, and and really led the way to some massive changes. Whether you talk about building hospitals or building schools, um, in our documentary docu series, how I got over, we talk about especially in the African American community, no institution has done as much for education as the Black Church, not even close. Um, and so we need to just sometimes look at history instead of following narratives. Uh, and too often we substitute narrative for fact, narrative for history. Uh, we need to keep our eye on what's real. Yeah. And and I, I do want to go a little bit deeper into what you're saying about 
the class divide and also how it shapes the current narrative because I'm seeing if we focus specifically on the the matter of identity, how we construe our identities, there's this very elitist bent to the way we talk about um, not just racial identity, but all these identity categories, these options, these boxes we have to check off because they really presume that we are these like atomized, totally individual uh, beings without connections to community, to God, to traditions that precede us. Um, and if you, again, like if you look specifically at the history of black communities in the US, like that's not how we, that's not how you talk about yourself. That's not how like identity is construed. Like it's much more nuanced and you know, multi-layered than that. Um, and I have to say from my, from my own experience, like my family comes from Newark, New Jersey, where, you know, there's a very complex history when it has to do with racial and ethnic identity, because, you know, you had uh, all different Southern Europeans living there for years, and then you had the Great Migration in the 30s, then you had you know, Puerto Ricans coming up in the, the 60s, and in the, it was like late 60s, early 70s, you know, my family, who's, my dad's side is Italian, like, they had to decide, are they going to follow the trend of white flight? Are they going to go to the suburbs? Are they going to try to hold on to the city, which some Italian politicians were doing, trying to keep people of color out of positions of power? Or do we collaborate with our new neighbors? And, and like my grandfather's position was, you know, we're not going to leave. We're not going to oppose the black neighbors. Like we're going to work together. But in order to do that, he said, like, we need to have a strong sense of our own identity. Like we have to have this sense of pride as Italians. And that's very different from calling yourself white. And I think like you see that both on the left and right, like you see on the right, this reduction of ethnic identity to whiteness as a means to hold on to social power, but also on the left, like, again, people who talk about, oh, you know, my white privilege, it's like, sure, you have privilege because you're white passing, but in terms of your identity, you're not just white, like you come from somewhere, like there's a tradition that you come from. Um, and I just see how much like losing the sense of tradition, roots, ethnic identity really flattens the conversation and makes it easier to have these kind of, you know, these big clashes. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the way we're talking about identity now. Um, how might we have a more nuanced understanding of identity moving forward? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think you hit on the key. Uh, again, to have these narratives that are easy to explain, that are easy to get people riled up over we have to flatten reality, right? We have to have the good versus bad, good versus evil. We have to have everything be black and white so we can point very clearly to who's wrong and who's right, and that's it. Unfortunately, I guess, life is just more complicated than that. Um, people within a, a certain race don't always disagree. People within a certain race have different experiences. Um, even with in my family, there are some people who've been denied a lot of opportunities based on their race, and that's one of the things that's held them back more than anything. There's other people I know in my family who will tell them back more than anything is they are, they're spoiled and they don't know how to work, right? Like there's every family, black, white, you know, brown, anything has those experiences. Now that, that doesn't take away from the broad experience that one uh, group would have. And, and we do need to generalize to some extent, but not to the extent that we deny the different experiences and realities on, on the inside. I, I was blessed to, you know, I'm, be, I'm from Colorado, uh, Denver, Colorado. And so I experienced a very diverse um, childhood. You know, I went to school with almost people from every class, from every uh, uh, demographic. 
uh, and, and every race. And so I've experienced the kindness of a lot of different people. And so it's really hard for me to demonize anybody completely. I know that privilege exists, but I also went, went to school with lower class white kids who weren't just swimming in privilege either, who maybe never got to the point where they even were able to cast that, that check in. Right. So I can't look at somebody and say, you know, I've heard people say, you know, if there's something, if they do, if they're not successful, it's because they, they didn't try or they wanted to be, I'm like, you, you just don't know people then you don't know what people have gone through. You don't know uh, people's parents have been on drugs or even some, I know kids who rich kids whose parents didn't spend any time with them. I wouldn't have changed places with them ever. Right. Mm -hmm. But until, until you really see people's experiences, you don't know uh, the difference, the different uh, testimonies that people have and different trials that people have undergone. And that's why we always have to have a level of compassion for everybody because it's so easy to look at somebody and not really know them and think they have it all together and think everything is right for them. But if you really got to know them, that's not the truth. Um, and so I, I, I'm just thankful for, for seeing that, for being able to see people at different classes, different races, experience adversity, maybe to different extents, maybe through different lenses. But we're all just trying to understand this, the human condition and make it through. Um, and so to have an appreciation for that helps us not only, you know, for me, evangelize. Uh, but also, again, have compassion for even the, you know, even the people who seem to be the meanest and the, the least compassionate. Fannie Lou Hamer, who's the other person by, uh, in the back of me, after being beaten at the behest of police, said that she felt sorry for them because they were sick. Yeah. And if you think about that perspective, like, that's a wonderful exposition of the gospel to say, not because they're completely evil, but because they were sick is how they could do this to me. That I mean, you know, I don't I don't know any philosopher that said that any better. Um, I mean, just a brilliant way of understanding human nature and what we go through. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, it's again, it's this need to really be in relationship with others on this basic personal level like this. I just again, I see in my own experience how this, you know, uh, dissolves so much of the ideological back and forth. Like once you can have that human relationship. Um, but but yeah, so I, I did want to close with just this topic of identity, and this is something that you covered with Chloe at the New York Encounter. Um, on a personal level, I'm I'm curious to hear, like, how do you construe your identity? Like, what factors, what are the most important factors that play a role in your sense of who you are as a person? Well, I mean, I, I think for certainly my faith, um, being an Orthodox Christian who believes in the authority of Scripture, uh, who believes uh, what the Bible says is a big is a big part of it. I don't run away from being a black man because that's a huge part of my experience as well. How I see the world, how I've kind of been marinated within this world uh, for better or, or worse. Um, and then just as you know, just as somebody within that Christianity who wants to get to know others, who believes in who's an American. Right. I, um, my, you know, some folks say that, you know, we understand the kind of problems with the 4th of July, but at the same time, while my dad would tell me the issues with it, he was all, he would also talk about the sacrifices that people made for us to be here. And people don't really do, you know, it's either we don't celebrate 4th of July or we don't realize any of the problems that America's had. I think there's a nuance there that a lot of people in black America and other ethnicities have seen, and we need to be willing to call it out unless something are, is our idol then we, we should be able to say the good and the bad that come with it and still be able to learn from and embrace that good where we find it while trying to correct the bad. And that's uh, that's kind of how I've uh, kind of configured and understood my, my own identity. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, and again, it's this this sense of nuance and the, the complexity of what it means to be human. Like, I think the more we recover that 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 self-awareness, like the easier it will be to face you know, the things going on in the culture around us. Yep. Um, that being said, Justin, anything that you'd like to plug for people listening right now? Sure. Well, thank, first, uh, Stephen, thanks for having me on. Um, you, as you know, we uh, we have our own podcast, which is the Church yeah. Politics Podcast, where we talk about politics from a biblical perspective. So you'll get commentary, you'll get policy breakdowns. We just came out with a um, docu-series, which is called How I Got Over, which is about the uh, the history and the impact of orthodoxy in the Black church. Again, when we get some of these narratives, we pretend orthodoxy is a white Western concept. Uh, and it's just not true. I mean, it's, it's something that um, people all over the world have been orthodox. It's not something that kind of white people have had and everybody else either copied. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are two resources. You can see the AND campaign uh, on Instagram uh, so uh, you know, and also Twitter at A&D campaign. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you again for coming on. This was great. Stephen, thanks for having me. Look forward to doing it again.